Genesis 5.1 This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Bryant Bales. Today we want to talk about Genesis chapter 5 and chapter 6. We've told you in the past that we want to go through the book one chapter at a time, and we want that to be the typical uh, way that we do things, but this is a little bit different. Today in chapter 5 we've got a genealogy, and we've got in chapter 6 a recording of the you might say downfall of humanity before the flood. And we felt it would be best to do both of these in one episode. So we're just going to try this out, see how this goes. And, uh, there, there's a sense where this show is an experiment of sorts. We're studying the Bible together in this podcast and we're thankful for you taking the time to, to listen today. Um, uh, what we want to encourage you to do is to email us at uh, walking through the book at protonmail.com as far as uh, spiritual topics and things like that. If you have any questions, especially if you have any concerns about the things that we've said on this podcast, or if you don't agree with them, uh, we're, we're certainly open to discussing these things. And, you know, we're thankful, of course, for, uh, to have this, uh, this input. What we're doing as well, uh, in terms of understanding more of how, we, you know, what it takes to run a podcast and things like that. Um, we, we hope you'll have the patience with us as we continue through this, uh, through this study as we walk through the book together. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and blessed them, and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived one hundred and thirty years, and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were eight hundred years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. Seth lived one hundred and five years, and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived eight hundred and seven years, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. Enosh lived ninety years, and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived eight hundred and fifteen years, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were nine hundred and five years, and he died. Canaan lived seventy years, and begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived eight hundred and forty years, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were nine hundred and ten years, and he died. Mahalalel lived sixty-five years, and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived eight hundred and thirty years, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were eight hundred and ninety-five years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. 
After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God three hundred years, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived one hundred and eighty-seven years, and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived seven hundred and eighty-two years, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were nine hundred and sixty-nine years, and he died. Lamech lived one hundred and eighty-two years, and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived five hundred and ninety-five years, and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were seven hundred and seventy-seven years, and he died. And Noah was five hundred years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, verse 1 and 2, you know, the emphasis in chapter 1 as well is that they uh, they were made in God's image, and it says that over and over again. But then as soon as Adam has one child, it says that it's in the likeness of Adam. So, it's like, clearly Adam knew he was from God, but then Seth would see he was from Adam and looked like Adam. So, it's like God designed life so that as soon as people started having offspring that God could easily be forgotten and you may not even recognize where you're really from anymore, but he purposely designed it that way. And like, you can actually see that in how this all plays out in chapter six, that there's a consequence to that. But I think it's the risk that God takes of his nature of faith, you know, cause recognizing where you're truly from requires faith. And if you don't have faith, well then you don't look where you're from. You look at like, uh, Contrast that to chapter 4, verse 17. Enoch, uh, or Cain built a city after Enoch. And so they focus on uh, their offspring rather than the one who made them. So just kind of interesting. Mm. Absolutely. That's that's an awesome observation. Uh, yeah, the fact that, and that we see that carry on, right? The fact that people pay more attention to their families, you know, than God. Blood is thicker than water, and sometimes blood is thicker than faith in some families. And so that that definitely is wrong. And then we see in, in Luke, actually, the, the, the genealogy, I think, which is in chapter 3, going backward, which I, I love because that's, again, getting us back to the fact that Adam was indeed the son of God, the original, you know, uh, not the original, of course, because Jesus was the son of God before time began, but still. Um He's as far as humanity, he is he, he is the son of God. So, you know, genealogies are the Bible's fast forward button. And so, you know, we could get tons of information. I think you've mentioned this before. Uh, we, we could get tons of information on these people, but obviously their stories, at least in detail, are not quite as important uh, in the revelation of salvation and, and the plan that God has put together and wants to, wants to reveal and wants to display. And so we're moving quickly through all these different years. But at the same time, we're given a construction, we're giving a, given a picture of how things are progressing in humanity. And, uh, so as we, as we discuss these genealogies, we really want to focus on, I think, four different people overall. Uh, obviously you've got, uh, the line of Seth starting up. And, uh, Seth is, is a line again that, that starts out, out of, uh, out of, I believe, a, a desire to want to do the right thing. Um, you know, you have this failure in Cain. And Cain not only uh, is is uh, angry and disobedient, 
he kills his brother. And so now there has to be something else going on there, uh, at least in Adam's mind. And so, uh, he, he bears, uh, he bears Seth forward. And, uh, we noticed last time that it says in chapter four, verse 26, that after Seth is, is born, uh, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. You know, Seth, Seth begins to have a son for him. And so there is this sense that Seth, at least himself, seems to want people, want his family to call on the name of the Lord. The idea that they know that, you know, he, he is their God. And, uh, and, you know, so I, I know that kind of, maybe that's a little tough to kind of pull together with the observation you just made about the fact that God allows himself to be forgotten. Um, uh, but, but again, I think that ties in with the later digression. Um, and so, uh, that, that, that's what I would say as far as Seth is he represents almost a new start here, uh, in some ways. Uh, and of course that start goes on for some, some time, but got any thoughts there, Brian? No, I think that's a, a good point, you know, cause you look back in chapter four, Cain's offspring were excellent with worldly things, but Seth's offspring were excellent in serving God. You know, and the difference between that, I think, is pretty, pretty amazing. And just that Seth with the idea of, you know, you look back and, you know, you came from Adam or you came from Seth or whoever, but then you still choose to call on the name of the Lord, you know, really shows like you were saying that this genealogy made effort of faith to remember God, which is pretty extraordinary considering what we already saw in Cain's offspring and what the world was like. Can you imagine being Seth and growing up under Adam and Eve and being told these stories about mm. Eden. Interesting. And, and can you imagine maybe the sadness in Adam's eyes and in his voice as he talks about, uh, uh, Eden, maybe they didn't talk about, it, I don't know. I mean, the text doesn't tell us, but it's just an interesting mm. thought there. So Enoch, I think is a really interesting figure. Um, Enoch is mentioned later on in in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, and referred back to. And uh, what, all we have, though, here is that uh, Enoch lived, he had family, uh, but it says, verse 24, that he walked with God. Um, this is the only detail. The next person that we really have any detail on is, uh, is Enoch. And w- with Enoch, you only have... I mean, him and Elijah are the only ones that he and Elijah are the only ones to have never seen death and just literally being mm-hmm. taken away. And uh, Hebrews eleven five by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And so we see a little bit more about Enoch given. Uh, also, Jude mentions Enoch, the seventh from Adam, uh, prophesying about certain people. Uh, so obviously, this this is a this is a guy who is uh, faithful to God, uh, who is interested in following Him, and interested in walking with Him, which would denote and imply a a relationship mm-hmm. with Him. Uh, so he seems to be a pretty pretty interesting dude. Yeah, and walking definitely seems to insinuate, you know in step fellowship almost like you're walking side by side with mm. you know mm-hmm. and then if you you know take that hebrews reference you know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god you know so ultimately enoch had access and god had given access to the generations of this time to his word in whatever form that took you know so it's like god was completely available i mean you think about the garden of eden adam and eve are walking with god in the garden of eden and it's amazing how corrupt the world is, and it's not like you couldn't walk with God. You know, it's just a matter of a person's heart and their own willingness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, you know, kind of like uh, you know, just the idea of Enoch being assigned to the wicked. You know, I think it, it's amazing that God showed that it's possible to have fellowship with him still, that he was willing to have fellowship, but that God could overcome death and the issue of sin because all these people died. And you have to think, like, people would have seen this and known about this, right? So, think about the impact that that, you know, could make on the people around Enoch, you know, in his generation, seeing God take someone so that they don't even die, you know, and they either see that or know about it. Um, 
you'd think that that would be a pretty strong uh, message of the need to repent and get right with God. Yeah, I mean, the message obviously is, and this is the message that's going to be repeated in terms of the flood, is that God saves those who are faithful to him. He protects them from the punishment to come. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a timeless message. So, absolutely. Uh, the next person that I, I think of is Methuselah. And I think primarily, you know, the funny thing is we don't, we don't have anything about Methuselah except for the fact that everybody knows he's the guy that lived the longest, supposedly. And, uh, given the, the time, you know, old Methuselah. Uh, but here's something to think of. And especially in context of chapter six, if the days of Methuselah are correct, and the the chronology of you know when Noah's living and how long Noah had lived before uh, he went to the ark, as we'll see in in chapters uh, six and seven and on for, forth from there, uh, we get the idea if you if you put all the numbers together that Methuselah was still living in Noah's time, and we have no record of Methuselah being on the ark. It was Noah's family, so that's that's something to think about. Is that uh, you know, Methuselah, he lived a long time, but, uh, but obviously if he was not part of that group that went onto the ark, he wasn't saved. Uh, so it's just, just an interesting point to bring up there. I think now Lamech would be the last person that I look at in this chapter. And, uh, Brian, you had some notes on, uh, his words about Noah. Yeah, I think his words in verse 28 through 30 are pretty interesting, or rather 28 through 29. Um, just how he says in the New King James, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And just as I've read through the Old Testament, it's just, it's interesting to take note of the things that people say that God listens to and responds to. Like think about Cain in Genesis chapter 4. You know, Cain told God that his punishment was too severe, so God listened to Cain and then set a sign over him. And, you know, I think it's difficult to comprehend how eager God is to listen, and especially with the things that are in accordance with his desire and his will. So you have to think, did God want the world to just fall into utter disarray and chaos and into complete judgment? Well, no. So you just imagine how eager God was for someone to say something like this and to listen and to respond. And I think it's really easy to overlook these things and almost like dismiss it as well. You know, maybe God just inspired him to say that, you know, God is just going to do what he's going to do. But I don't know, maybe it's helpful to think about how eager God was to listen to this and how zealous God was to find someone who would say something like this and then do that. And do it in that way to show us how willing God is to listen when we say or ask things that are in direct allegiance to his will. Um, and I think about the things that Jesus in the New Testament said about, uh, you know, ask and it will be given to you. And that's meant to be an exhortation that gives us confidence in God being willing to listen to us when we're seeking his will to be done. Um, so I find, I find, just find that very, very encouraging that so much was done on God's part. Because um, just one one last thing on that, you know, something I've been talking to some people about recently, one person in particular, is how easy it is to pray, but how much work God does to respond. You know, praying is easy, but then God has to go through the work of discerning what's the best way to respond and then doing the work to make it happen. And I think that's like, Lamech says the easy thing, right? Like, this one will comfort us well, that's going to take a lot of work. That's going to take a lot. And God's willing to do that work. But God's willing to listen because it's that's what he wants to do. It's interesting, too, because I just looked up the meaning of the name Noah and it's rest. Hmm. Interesting. So I think that's, you know, he, he I mean, that's, that's what we see is that when they name them things, there's a reason for it. And so he called his name Noah saying this one will comfort us concerning our hmm. work. You know, comfort is something that, you know, it, it has to be on God's terms, right? You know, if I have comfort, if I have rest, um, I can rest on my own. I can rest and not do the work that I'm supposed to be doing. 
uh, or I can do the work that I'm supposed to be doing and look forward to the true rest, the rest that God has for me. Uh, so, you know, those are the, those are the possibilities before us there, but, uh, but yeah, very, very awesome observations about, uh, about Lamech's words. Well, I think that kind of covers chapter five. And now that we've got chapter five covered, let's read through chapter six. And Bryant's going to be reading that out of the New King James Version. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, that daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you and to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourselves of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. you think about some initial observations toward chapter six, uh, one thing that I need to say to anybody who may be listening to this, a full disclosure, Bryant and I pronounce names uh, in different ways, and uh, we have different uh, theories as to why this is the case. Um, I think it's because he's, uh, you know, from up north, and maybe <laughs> that's the case, uh, you know, maybe that's our, our same reason, but uh, I would pronounce it Japheth. But, uh, no, you're probably right. <laughs> Japheth, J- J- well, Japheth, hey, you know, you can, you could say it that way. I mean, it's no problem. No, uh, actually, you know. as soon as I said it, I was like, yeah, I said that weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's okay. Everybody, it, tomato, tomato, right? But, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to see w- when you look at the, the fact that God is continuing to allow, this family structure to keep going, right? He continues to allow these lineages to go. And uh, in verse one, they began to multiply on the face of the earth. We see the fruition 
of what God had wanted Adam and Eve to do in the first place. Mm. And so that's a good thing. But obviously what's coming about is something very different. And uh, when we, uh, the first part of this episode with chapter five, we actually recorded separately from this time. And Brian and I talked about, uh, you know, how we want to look at, at the, these verses, because I think there's some uh, controversies, maybe is a, maybe is a strong word to associate with it, but there is some disagreement as to what exactly this passage is talking about. Because we see these in verse two, sons of God, seeing the daughters of men, who are these sons of God? Um, it, it, it's, it's hard to say exactly what's going on. This is again, it gets back to the thought that Genesis is actually a very mysterious book. It's a book that does not have, you know, doesn't mm-hmm. give a whole lot mm-hmm. as far as detail. Uh, and so we have to kind of look at it in that way and appreciate it from that perspective. But there are a couple of different possibilities here. Um, many people say that the sons of God are literally the angels and that they saw daughters of men, saw they were beautiful. So the, uh, the daughters of mankind and they took wives uh, of them. And, uh, you know, the, I, I understand to some degree uh, why someone might think this, because initially, you know, we, we see this. The, this is the beginning of the downturn, you might say. And not too long after that, in verse four, there were giants on the earth in those days. Well, the theory or the thought is that, that man, uh, daughters of men, uh, somehow got together with angels and their children were giants. And, uh, you know, you could say that and you could put that together. Um, but it's it just, I'd be hard pressed to say, you know, what's the point of God allowing that to happen? But then there's some textual issues uh, with me on that. And I'd like to hear from you about this, Bryant. Um, you know, Jesus says in the New Testament that, you know, those in heaven, the angels in heaven are not given in marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, verse two would would focus on they're taking wives for themselves. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, it means they're they're binding together. They're they're coming together. Uh, what what Jesus basically says later on, um, Matthew 22, and uh, he's talking about when the dead rise again, when the resurrection happens, they'll be like the angels in heaven, and they're not going to marry. They're not going to be given in marriage or anything like that. And so that's that's Matthew 22, verse 30, I believe. So, um, so ultimately what Jesus says there, if these are angels, and later on he says that they're not given – in marriage, um, I, I'm, I'm not really sure about that. I'm sure there's some arguments about that, and we would be certainly happy to, to hear about that. But I would lean more toward the thought that these are righteous people, sons of God, people who are doing the right thing. The line of Seth looking at the daughters of men, meaning people who are maybe from less righteous lineages, not necessarily righteous inherently, but just people who are more wicked and they're, they're intermarrying with them. And that's where you see sin begin to take over. But what what are your thoughts on that, Bryant? Yeah, really just kind of the same thing you said, you know, with Matthew 22 when Jesus says the angels, you know, seem to be the implication is angels are genderless. Um, and he says they're neither male nor female, but are like the angels of heaven. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a mysterious verse, like you said, you know, and I think it's hard to come to any definitive conclusion. Um, something that is interesting though, uh, verse two, they saw that they were beautiful. They took them and they chose them for themselves. And that's kind of like Eve in the Garden of Eden. She saw the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes. You know, it was pleasant. Mm -hmm. Um, But then if you look at verse 5, God sees on the basis of the heart, and he acts on that basis, which is interesting. So it's like they're making choices that are in direct opposition to the character of God. So like getting back to Mm -hmm. Genesis 1, God made man in his image. This actually shows how far men had fallen from the image of God. You know, that they were acting just based on appearance. And you can see how devastating that is. Eve based on Eve acted on appearance in the garden. 
they're acting on appearance here and what's the result. Yeah. There, there's multiple examples of that later on in scripture too. I mean, one, one thing that pops into my head is, is Samson mm, in Judges. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. it seems like every, every decision he makes is based on what he desires or what he wants at that time, whether it's vengeance mm. or whether it's a particular woman. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I would agree with that. Absolutely. That the intent is there, that there's no, there, this is not a good thing that's happening. You know, regardless of what you think, regardless of whether you think these are angels, uh, you know, intermarrying with human women, whether you think these are righteous people, uh, intermarrying with unrighteous people, this is something that's not good. And this is the point where verse three, where God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Mm. Uh, that's striving. Uh, my, um, my footnote in my Bible says abide. And so I, I obviously living with man, being among man. You think about this, this is kind of an interesting thought when we consider Genesis is there was a point where everybody worshiped God. I mean, there must have been. If we if we understand what the Bible says and take it for what it is, then Adam and Eve was that that was the first family and all living came from that. Eve is called the mother of all living. And so everybody at one point was worshiping and strive and, and serving God and, and seeking to do that. Well, obviously at some point, um, you know, Cain's family, it seems would have been obliterated by this flood. But at this point, Cain's family is still going on. And so perhaps you've got some intermarriage, some kind of uh, intermarrying between the line of Seth and the line of Cain. That's, that's the, that's the possibility to me. But, but he says, I'm not going to abide with man forever. And why is that? He is indeed flesh. His day shall be 120 years. God begins to count down from this point, from this intermarrying, whatever this is, he begins to count down at this point toward the time when he's literally going to start over again. And this is, this is a huge thing when we, when we consider this, but we'll, we'll get more, more into that in just a minute. We've got the Lord seeing this great wickedness. We're seeing the Lord uh, having a particular, uh, uh, reaction to this wickedness. And it's interesting that it's not anger Hmm. Uh, to me. It doesn't seem to be there's anything here that, you know, the spirit that the Lord is wrathful and, you know, just no. Uh, verse six says he was grieved in his heart. He was grieved in his heart. Uh, that that teaches us something that we'll get into in the section about themes. But uh, but we see in verse nine too the genealogy of Noah. We see he's a just man. He's perfect in his generations, which is a huge compliment uh, in the biblical text, I would say Noah walked with God. Who else have we seen recently that walked with God mm-hmm. in this same episode? We've seen in the, in chapter five, that Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. The idea that he had such a close relationship to God. He walked with God in lockstep to the point that God didn't allow him to see death, took him away from the world. And so God saw that the earth was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Uh, it's interesting as well that, you know, kind of skipping back to verse five, the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. I'm not sure that, you know, people talk about how bad things are getting today in the world. I'm not sure that it's that bad today. What do you think, Bryant? I, I'm not, you know, y- you still have people in this world that are thinking good things and mm-hmm. wanting to do good things. It would seem to me, I, I I think the situation now is not as bad as what was back then. Yeah, I mean, the influence of the gospel around the world, you know, the world is, mm-hmm. it seems like the world is hardly what it was before Jesus ascended. And, you know, not even just Christians, but those who are influenced still by the mentality and the lifestyle of Christianity, even if they don't realize it, you know. So, yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that. Moving on from this, you know, we see God having these instructions to Noah and it just, it always hits me 
in this chapter how detailed these instructions are and how much we know about it. However, um, there's some things that we can recognize that, you know, God was very specific about some things and there are some other things that he may not have been specific with. And uh, that kind of gets into the whole concept when we want to try to apply this. Really, when we talk about that later on, we want to consider those different aspects of it as we continue to look at this chapter in continuation of this episode. You got anything else as far as observations, Brian? Yeah, just how grieved God was. It kind of reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, when Jesus said that his, he was so distressed that it was even to death, you know, it's like un, unbearable grief, you know, and Luke's gospel actually accounts for an angel, uh, coming to Jesus to strengthen him in the garden of Gethsemane. So you just imagine like unbearable grief. And I think about that with, you know, the grief of God's heart. We, we talked about before how God, you know, it's almost like he hides his passions, and he reveals them in a way that's digestible. But just how grieved he was, you know, I think is impossible to communicate except to see Jesus on the cross and just see just how grieved God is from sin, especially to see that every intent of every heart was only evil. There was no good thoughts, no righteous thoughts, no hope. You know, you just imagine, you know, how grieved Jesus was, but then God's heart you imagine even more so, you know, just incredible. when we get into the themes of this chapter again we're sort of uh we talked before we recorded this this part that uh we're sort of making this up as we go sort of trying to transition uh through these things and figure out how we're going to do episodes like this where we're covering more than one chapter and uh you know we 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 left off with this idea that uh, of the level of god's grief and uh how much this must have broken his heart that his creation had gone awry you know, some people could argue, well, this is your creation. This is, you know, this is what you did. And of course, uh, some friends, uh, some friends who may be, uh, uh, Calvinist leaning out there may say, well, you know, God, uh, intended for this to happen. Uh, I would argue that God never intends for sin to happen. Uh, why would someone intend for something to happen that would cause you this amount of grief? Uh, Brian, you had an awesome point about the idea that, uh, that God holds back on sharing his passions, his emotions with us, because I mean, it makes me think of the thought that, you know, that the Israelites couldn't handle the voice coming from the mm. mountain. And, uh, he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock because listen, I know you can't handle looking at my face. You're going to die. If you look at my face, if we were able to experience, if God expressed every ounce of his emotion and his passion, what would that do to us? <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure that we would be able to survive that. And so God holds back, but, but we, we recognize this is the big thing about, uh, about, uh, their sin, their sin grieved God as there are giants in the earth in those days. Verse four, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children. These were the mighty men who are of old men of renown. Now think about this. Uh, and, and again, I'm kind of going along with the concept, the theory that these are the righteous line of Seth commingling with the wicked line of Cain at this time. And again, that's, that's certainly what it seems to be like to me. Um, what did we see Cain's family doing in chapter mm -hmm. four? They were perfecting the ways of, uh, of the world, basically. Um, what are, what are they working on? They're, they're dwelling in tents. They have livestock. Uh, another one is the father of the, those who play the harp and flute. Uh, 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 Zilla 
bears Tubal Cain, who's an instructor of every craftsman bronze and iron. And so you've got all this industry being built up. And, uh, and, and that, that's going to be remembered. That's actually going to be brought back up not too long after the flood. And so I, I guess, again, this is speculation. Genesis is a book that just doesn't give us a whole lot. But, you know, what happens when people who know how to do all these things practically come together with people that maybe have a higher sense of morals or a higher ideals? I'm not saying that these were, you know, I mean, te- technically these were good people, right? But they were intermingling with these other people. And I guess one thing that, that I would, uh, one point that I might make out of that is that there are times in history where good people are used for the sake of maybe progress. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but um, it, it seems to be something that produces this line of very impressive people. You know, these, these mighty men who, who were of old men of renown legend, legendary people, you might even say. And again, I don't know exactly what would have made them legendary, but that certainly was from an earthly perspective, I think. And and because in verse five, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And, and again, it's interesting to think about the thought is it, it's interesting to consider that things that the world looks at as impressive or wonderful or glorious, God can look at them and say, wow, this is terrible. <laughs> what well, is interesting, um, how oblivious mankind seems to God's grief and what's coming. And it's like, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, in second Peter chapter two and in Jude, you know, talking about God bringing his wrath and punishment and what people were doing in those times. Um, and Jesus even spoke about this, I think in Luke chapter 17, you know, they were eating and drinking, being merry, um, being given in marriage. So it's like they were just going about their lives, but little did they know that God's wrath had reached the point where it was unbearable and they were at the point of judgment. You know, and it's like, if only, if only we knew, you know, um, mm-hmm. I think it's, I believe it's Amos, um, but it's a theme in the prophets that if at the times when God was going to judge Israel, if they really knew they would stop their feasts, they would stop their marriages, they would stop the ceremonies and they would immediately repent. Like they would stop everything happening in their lives and just right away, just embrace their grief, you know? And, and they had to be shocked into that. Right. Reality. Right. Right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm reminded of, of, uh, I'm reminded of Amos. You bring up Amos. He called the ruling class, the women of the ruling class of Israel, cows of Bashan. Mm. And, uh, it, it, it brings out this thought that, you know, sometimes God shocks us into reality. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what God was about to do with the flood. Uh, you know, reality was going to come to a lot of people very, very quickly. And, uh, and so he, he, he's grieved. And so he resolves verse seven to destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air. And why I'm sorry that I've made them. Well, was God at fault? Was God the one that had made the mistake? Uh, it's really, <laughs> it would be impossible for me to think that because again, this was man's free will. This is what he continued to want. This is what he continued to desire. Uh, we've already talked about how it seems like these sons of God taking on daughters of men. Well, this is what they desire. This is what they wanted. And they chose this. And further on, they're bearing children with these people. And we see all these supposed good things happening. And, uh, again, maybe it has something to do with the thought that may, maybe these were righteous people that are saying, Hey, there's all these other people. Maybe they're not as wicked as everybody says. Maybe they're not as bad as everybody says. And so they begin, uh, cohabiting with them, being a part of them, joining together with them. 
and we see from a spiritual perspective some terrible things happening. But when we look at Noah, Noah is a, is a man who's just. He walked with God, and he had three sons. And we see with the earth corrupt before God. Uh, and it's interesting, too, in verse 11, the earth was filled with what? It was filled with violence. You know, violence is, is something that God looks at. Violence is something that God doesn't tolerate and doesn't appreciate. And so he looked at the earth, and the earth is corrupt. And But then the, the, this goes back to who was the mistake? You know, who, who was the problem? It says in verse 12, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God didn't corrupt their way. God didn't make it so that they had to do this. Uh, and to hold him responsible for that uh, is, is to not ultimately I mean, be worse than unfair, but to not appreciate, not, not understand uh, what the text is telling us. You know, it's interesting, too, if the world was filled with violence right there, you know, that violence doesn't come from God then. And the violent, illicit violence only because there's a requirement of justice, right? But it's interesting that the flood was pretty violent, but you have to think like what God could have done. He could have slowly tortured every violent person. He could have openly Mm -hmm. shamed Mm -hmm. them. He could have done humiliating things. But what it sounds like, you know, in the chapter we haven't covered yet, uh, chapter seven, um, you know, it sounds like the flood was something that what didn't just come down like light rain, but I mean, it's almost like the earth and the sky exploded out and just obliterated Mm -hmm. everything fast, just completely obliterated, Mm -hmm. you know, and we have fossils that are preserved marvelously that sometimes are said to be because of a very fast catastrophic flood that would have decimated everything in a moment. So you think about the mercy that people were so corrupt and so filled with violence. God was so grieved, but he just put a stop to it immediately, you know, and I I don't know if that makes sense, but just the idea that God could have done very violent things in return, but he chose to end it quickly. I just think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, but, uh, one of my deepest fears is drowning. And so, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I would, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't think the flood would have been a great way, but no, uh, obviously comparatively, you know, you offered some other possibilities that God could have done and that he didn't. And in his mercy and his grace, he offered a situation that would be fairly quick and, uh, overall, probably for most would be fairly painless. Um, you know, I, I'm hard, hard for me to say, but, uh, but ultimately we can praise God for these things. That, that's the wonderful thing about it. When you begin to understand God and who he is, you can praise him for things like this. You can praise him for these things because he, everything he does is done in love. That's, that's one of the big things about this. And he doesn't make a full, you know, he could have just wiped out the whole earth. You know what? No and his family. Yeah, but I, I'm not even really going to spend time with them. I don't even really, you know, God loves Noah and he loves his family. He loves humanity. But because of this wickedness, because of this, this level of sin, he's got to bring this destruction. Uh, if he does not, then he's not a holy God and he's not a just God. And so... Uh, but certainly welcome any questions or comments about that to our email. Uh, as God communicates with Noah, he says in verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence. I'm going to destroy them on the earth. And he said he commands him to make this ark. And again, there's some very specific things that he uses. He asks, you know, he says, you make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Uh, and we ask the question sometimes, you know, what would have happened if Noah had said, well, you know, I, I prefer cedar or I prefer pine or I prefer oak or something like that. Uh, obviously that wouldn't have fulfilled what God, uh, is looking for here. He has very specific, uh, instructions for this and all through the, even the instructions, he's reminding him verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy under heaven, all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
But he says, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark. And he, he, he is preserving Noah and his family. And even more so, he's preserving animals. He's preserving uh, the foundational aspects of life. Because what did, what did God create these beasts for? <clears throat> what did he create these animals for? Well, he put man under, you know, he put them under man's dominion. We see that in chapter one. And so he continues that, that concept, that system is going to con- continue. He's trying to get as far back to that system as he can. And thankfully he doesn't, it's not like he holds the animals, uh, responsible for these things. He preserves the animals and he preserves, uh, each of them we'll see, you know, two by two, two of every sort to continue on the procreation of these animals as well. I don't know. It's like man in ignorance was actively destroying life and destroying themselves. And yet God with incredible wisdom in contrast to that is working with compassion and mercy to preserve life. And he's trying to preserve as much life as he possibly can, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like above and beyond, like it's not just Noah, but it's his family too. doesn't say before that Noah's family was perfect, just Noah. But Mm -hmm. because they're associated with Noah in some way, it's like, Hey, let's bring them to bring all the animals, bring all this food. So it's like as much life as God can keep, he's going to keep it. You think about how big the ark was. He could have told Noah to just build a little boat, you know, get in the boat and float around. But like he wanted this boat to be filled with life, as much life as possible. So it's just kind of interesting. The beginning of the chapter is, you know, man's destroying everything, lots of violence. And yes, God is about to flood the earth, but God's doing everything he can to preserve life, you know, and bring new life. What's the what's the term that people will use when someone's playing a board game and just gets mad. They just flip the table over completely. Rage quit. Uh, yeah, rage quit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so God, God doesn't rage quit the earth. Yeah, um, right. You know, he could, he, he easily could have just turned the whole place over and just, you know, whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to, but, but again, this is an eternal message. This is a timeless message throughout all of scripture. Uh, I think it's in Ezekiel where he gives him the vision of this potter. And the potter is forming a vessel in the clay and it becomes marred in the hands of the potter. Mm. Well, what does he do? He smushes it down and remakes it and, and starts over with it and makes a new vessel out of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's what he's doing here. As we come to our final section on application, some of the big things that jump out of my mind as far as application is, you know, it wasn't just these people back then that had sin. It wasn't just these people way back before the flood that had this problem. Uh, the flood, in fact, did not sort out all the problems, as we'll soon see. But uh, But we've got to appreciate that we have sin as well. And how does God respond to that sin? How does God respond to our sin? Does he respond in a different way than he did to those people back then? Some people may claim, well, he's not flooding the earth. In fact, we're going to see later there's a promise that he's never going to flood the earth again. But there's going to be something that does happen ultimately. And maybe we can develop that thought in the next few chapters as we continue in considering the flood and the importance of it. All judgments of God are similar, very similar to each other. And they all have similar features and they all have similar uh, emphasis. God is taking a bad situation, destroying the bad, getting rid of the bad out of that, and then making something new, something pure, and something that is different. And, and we have a new situation afterwards. 
And so the flood is the first time in the Bible, uh, not the first time ultimately, we've got the garden coming out of the garden from that. But the flood is is definitely probably the biggest uh, initial point where we see a, a worldwide change. And again, as you, you've mentioned, Bryant, uh, there are records from all the world's supposed ancient religions and any kind of history or any kind of uh, legend that we can look at, there's almost a worldwide agreement that there was a great flood, that there was some aspect of that. And like you said, we can see evidence of that today. We can see evidence of trees being preserved between rock layers. And so what's, what's up with that? Well, uh, those rock layers seem, it seems like they could be sediment, uh, that had settled over time. I I don't know for sure, but, uh, I'm not a geologist or anything like that, but, um, but it's important for us to note that God deals with sin. He's going to deal with it, not, not deal with it in a sense that he's going to be okay with it or work through it. It means that he's going to, he's going to take care of it, which means that he's going to get rid of it. Um, that's the ultimate thing. So if we understand that, and then we also understand that it grieves him, it's something that doesn't just make him angry, but it grieves him. Then we'll understand that we, we need to make sure that our sin in our lives is solved, that God can take that sin away from us. And how do we do that? Well, maybe at the first point, we need to think about being more like Noah. We need to have a mindset where I'm going to walk with God. Meaning I'm going to be with him. I'm going to have a relationship with him. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to ask about him. I'm going to want to be uh, with him constantly. And following that, you have this mindset that whatever he commands me, I'm going to do it. Whatever it is and whatever amount of detail he gives me in that, I'm going to follow those commands so that I can be preserved and so that I can be saved. Yeah, something on, you know, condemnation and judgment reminds me of Romans chapter 2, where it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Because really the principle at work in Genesis 6 is they were indulging in the flesh. They were making choices on the basis of the flesh, glorifying the flesh. And they weren't glorifying the God who made them. And I'm guilty of that. And I think we all are based on God's testimony. But he says, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Or do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, which we all and see in Noah's time that God was being good, forbearant, and long-suffering. Then Paul says, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness of heart, the hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So, you know, something Noah teaches us, or that, that time frame, is that God's judgment is inevitable. And the only reason it wouldn't appear that way is actually because of the qualities of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, giving us goodness that he intends to lead us to repentance, but our wickedness just blinds us to. So we do need to repent, and we need to understand the urgency of repentance. And Romans 8 talks about in Romans 8, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. And it says, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I think that's definitely what we see in Noah's time is, you know, they were carnally minded. They were just following their flesh. And Romans 8, you know, teaches that the people of the flesh can't please God, are hostile to God. And Romans 2 makes the point that judgment and condemnation to those who practice such things is inevitable. So 
God has given us this word to enlighten our understanding and to not be ignorant because that's what we make ourselves. We make ourselves ignorant of things that are actually quite obvious and apparent. All right. Well, thank you for listening today. Uh, Hopefully we will uh, come back with you next time uh, to get into Genesis chapter seven as we continue to walk through the book. Thankful for your time, Bryant, and uh, appreciate you being here. Yeah, absolutely. Very thankful to be able to do it. All right. Study well and be lights to his glory. We'll be with you next time, Lord willing. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.